Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,259 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the 14th of a 25-week message series covering the book of Hebrews. This message is titled, May I Speak to Your Conscience, Please? I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thank you all. As we continue our extended series in the book of Hebrews today, Hebrews, a book in the New Testament. That's the Old Testament of the New Testament, I refer to it as. And last week we discussed the new covenant of Christ that he brings to us. The New Testament, the new covenant, the good news, commonly referred to as the gospel. And this week we're going to explore a reformation of our conscience. What is that conscience? And why does it need to be reformed? Today's passage is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. It's on page 1871 of your pew Bibles, if you follow along with me. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In the first room were the lampstands and the table of consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had a golden altar of incense, the golden covered Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained a gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins that the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was shadowing, or showing by this, the way to the most high place that had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the consciences of the believers. They were only the matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. This next section is the blood of Christ. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, it is not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctified them so that they were outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanses our conscience from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Now, throughout the book of Hebrews so far, the first eight chapters up to this point, the author has been leveling biblical arguments for the superiority of Christ in his person and his work. And he's compared those to the Old Testament and its priests in their ministries. Now, Hebrews 8, which we studied last week, was the topic that pursued the earthly tabernacle and its temporary ministry. In asserting that Jesus, as our high priest, 
and his ministry in the true heavenly tabernacle was so far superior to that. Today we return to the Old Testament scene of that tabernacle. If you remember the slides from last week, we went through the entire tabernacle and the children's message. The writer again directs us over the preeminent person of the work of Jesus Christ. He contrasts the external physical worship of the tabernacle with the sacrifices and ritual washings that can only cleanse the outward. And he compares those with the sacrifices, the internal spiritual work of Christ's sacrifice, which he is able to clear and cleanse our inner conscience. Though he mentions details of the furnishings in the tabernacle today, in that physical tabernacle, and the ministry of the priests, the author's primary purpose is not to focus on the details of that tabernacle, drawing away from those external tangible things, he wants us to focus on that internal spiritual matters of the heart. How easy it is for us, even today, to get wrapped up in externals. Those things that we can see and touch and experience with our bodies. How easy it is to forget that within our bodies is a network of emotions and thoughts and impulses that control what we do and it's all bound up in our conscience. That powerful little inner voice that prods us to do right and convicts us when we do wrong. However, the conscience is certainly not fail-safe. It can be damaged or dulled, making us feel good about our wickedness and guilty when we're innocent. The problems with the letters to these original Jewish Christians, those recipients, that they were tempted to address their internal struggles, their spiritual concerns, their conscience with external trappings a physical form of worship that was never intended to cleanse the inner person. And such efforts are futile. They belong to a temporary stage in God's plan of redemption, an age that pointed to a future time when Reformation would address not only the external aspects of a person, but more importantly, our internal consciences. As we look at the first 10 verses of chapter 9, it describes in summary a fashion, and the arrangements of the furnishings in the tabernacle. The first five verses cover that, how the tabernacle was laid out. The next five verses, verses 6 through 10, describes how the regulations of worship occurred. And the author writes in verse 5, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. That wasn't the purpose of his letter here. In other words, it wasn't his purpose to go into great detail. So we won't do that either today. Instead, we'll discuss the furniture and the functions of the tabernacle just in a general way. The tabernacle was a tent that the Levites carried around with them during their wilderness wanderings. When they stopped somewhere where God told them to stop, the priests would reassemble that element of the temple and erect a place of worship so they could perform their religious duties. Now, this temporary structure then housed a variety of implements that were necessary for worshiping and carrying out those animal sacrifices and the rituals. And this was all strictly prescribed by God, the regulations of that old covenantal system. And that was, you can see in your bulletin insert today on the side with the big picture on it, may I speak to your conscience, please. In this diagram in the bulletin insert, the tabernacle has three main areas. First was the main court of the sanctuary. And this was that large area enclosed by the, the tent, um, edges there. They were fenced in the tabernacle. 
and itself was set apart from the Israelite encampment. The encampments are on all four sides where they pitched their tents around the tabernacle. The tabernacle was in the middle of the encampment, establishing a space for them to conduct their, their priesthood. Now, in this outer court was a bronze altar. It's called a brazen or a bronze altar. And it was for presenting the various offerings to the Lord. This is where they slaughtered the animals. This is where they brought their, their bread offerings and their help offerings to this altar. Next to the altar, going moving further into the tabernacle area, was the bronze laver. laver. And this was just this huge brazen or copper bowl with ceremonial water in it. And the priest would wash in that bowl before entering into the tabernacle itself. Now, the second place is the holy place, which was the tabernacle. That's the main tabernacle. It was situated behind this thick veil, beyond that bronze laver, that bronze wash basin. The priest would enter a holy place through the veil, where the golden lampstand was on one side, and the table of showbread was on the other. So as they entered the veil in that holy place, they would look over to the left, and the lampstands would be there, and it was for their duty to light those. And on the Right-hand side would be the table of showbread, which they changed out that bread on a weekly basis. Usually, at the far end of the holy place, outside of the Holy of Holies, was that altar of incense, where they kept incense burning continually before the Lord. According to the author of Hebrews, on the Day of the Atonement, though, the altar of, the, of incense was actually located inside the Holy of Holies. Although Exodus chapter 30, verse 6, and Leviticus chapter 16, verse 12 through 18, places the altar in the holy place. But in verses 3 and 4 today, it indicates that this part of the innermost was in the holy of holies itself. What is this apparent contradiction that has vexed commentators since that day? So, however, the author, purpose of the author of Hebrews was not to go into great detail of the furnishings, but to summarize the arrangements of the implement of worship, primarily as it related to that Day of Atonement. And you've got to keep your focus on, the author of Hebrews is focusing on that Day of Atonement, that day when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And as such, the writer was correct to associate that golden altar of incense with the Holy of Holies. One commentator by the last name of Alan explains, in verse 4, the word participle which eschusah, which means which had, it does not refer to that location, but rather than the use, and thus would be given the translation, translation this, this altar of incense was associated with the Holy of Holies. And the strength of this view is the altar of incense was so closely associated with the Holy of Holies by virtue of its location, immediately in front of that veil, especially on the Day of Atonement, that the high priest would take their incense holders and they would take that incense in with them into the Holy of Holies to spread that incense of prayer before a holy God. So the high priest brought the incense in with them into the Holy of Holies. Another commentator by the last name of Guthrie writes, the altar was placed so that the smoke of the burning incense was supposed to penetrate that curtain and rise to God before the Ark of the Covenant. Now it's also possible though a third possibility is that when they went into the Holy of Holies, they draped that curtain around the altar of incense so that those incense would go up before the, the throne of God. And its purpose was 
to shroud that throne with this altar of incense. In his relation to our relationship with Christ today, our prayers are that same as that incense going up before the throne of God. So we'll keep that in mind as we look at that. And the third area of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, or that inner tabernacle. It was a small space behind that second veil in which rested the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, containing those original tablets that God wrote on from the Ten Commandments. It contained that rod of Aaron that had budded in the golden jar of manna from the wilderness. And if you remember, if they kept the wilderness or the manna more than a day, it would rot, except on the Sabbath. But yet God preserved it in this golden jar for generations from that point on. It talks about this in Exodus 25, verses 10 through um, 10 and 22, and also here in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Now this golden altar of incense in verse 4 was also in this location, or so the author of Hebrews describes it. It was used to obscure with a thick smoke that holy altar of God, the Ark of the Covenant, where God came down and met with the high priest. Now having, having set the stage and arranged the props in chapter, verses 1 through 5, the author focuses attention in verses 6 through 10 on those main actors of the worship in the tabernacle, and that was the priest, and especially the high priest. In verse 7, whereas the rotating order of priests had various daily responsibilities as they would go into the holy place, they offered their sacrifices, they made offerings, they attended rituals in that holy place. In verse 6, think of Zechariah, the father of John the baptizer, and he was elected one time in his entire life to go into that holy place to perform the functions of the priest to offer sacrifices, to light the candles, to handle the showbread on the other, and to burn altar incenses before God. The high priest then was permitted once per year was to go into the Holy of Holies. But it was only for that day of atonement, that one day a year where he went before God to present to God offerings, first for himself, and then for the congregation of believers. This annual offering of blood, in verse 7 says, was offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. As we move on to verses 13 and 14, think about the inner and the outer person. The Bible teaches that humans have a material, a tangible part that we call this outer person. But there's also an immaterial or intangible part to us that we call the inner person. This is the Bible's teaching concerning humans from the beginning. Think of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, The Lord formed God, formed man, for the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. That's our physical aspect. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That is the spiritual aspect. And then the man became a living being, and that's the whole person, our body and our soul. We see a distinction, though, between these two aspects of our personal throughout the Scripture. In 1, King, or 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, God says, The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by their outward appearance, but the Lord judges by, looks at the, at the heart. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, 
Our spirits are being renewed each day. And when our bodies die, and they will at some point in our lives, we'll all die. They'll return to the ground until that future resurrection when the Christ returns for a second time to set up that new global Eden to rule and to reign for all eternity. But our in, immaterial part of us continues on in some manner once we die. We're not fully sure exactly what form that will take, but Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Yes, we are fully confident that we would rather die and be away from these earthly bodies, and then we will be at home with the Lord. And the Lord said on the cross as he was hanging there being crucified, and the, one of the people hanging with him said, Remember me. And he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. So once we die, our spirit or some sort of corporal being will be before God instantly. And when Christ returns for a second time, the dead in Christ will rise first. We will be incorporated with immortal bodies. Our spirit has gone before us into before the throne of God, and we're residing there for eternity. And when Christ returns, our immortal bodies will be paired back up with our soul and will rule and reign in that global Eden forever with Christ as he has set up the kingdom here on earth that will last for eternity. Thus, as humans, we are, we're not strictly material beings, as most atheists would have us to believe, nor are we essentially spirit beings that are trapped in some sort of physical form, as many Far Eastern religions or New Age or Gnostic religions would have us believe. Theologians call us a psychosomatic union. It's the unity of the body and the soul. The internal with the external, the invisible with the visible. God prescribed that these entire systems of worship in the ta tabernacle in painstaking detail in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Yet these rituals only addressed the outer person and are resolved around material things and physical actions. In verse 10, it says these gifts and offerings that they were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. I think the new world order has gotten sort of a bad rap in our world today because at some point Christ will. In fact, he did when he was crucified. He established a new world order of things that are yet to come but are things that are here today. Yet by prophetic spirit, these temporal physical forms of worship were intended only to point forward to that symbolic new order that Christ established. Unless the outer tabernacle was taken down, opening a way into the entrance of the inner sanctuary where God dwells, there could only be access to God through the high priest and the continual sacrificial offerings. But when Christ came, he sacrificed once for all. And because of that, we will have and can have eternal life before his throne. We don't have to wait for the day of atonement to approach God. We don't have to wait for a high priest to offer sin, the, bl the blood for sins of his own and then for our sins every day, like that altar of incense wafting up before God's throne. We can both go before his throne 
with our requests and our prayers and our pleadings and our praises before the throne of God. That's the new order. The first century audience of Hebrews was tempted to return, though, to highly structured, formalized worship, where the priesthood and the sacrifices with its washings and its incense, with its lampstands and its sacred bread that were carried on in a physical temple here on earth. They were hoping to find an inner relief through these outward rituals. The author of Hebrews, however, argues that external activities, no matter how flawlessly they're done, can never cleanse a guilty conscience. We move on to verses 11 through 14. We know times have changed today, but human nature has not. In many, the many years that Paul and I have served in the church throughout our adult life, we've seen the same mentality characterize, that characterized these audience of Hebrews. They creep into the churches and corrupt our lives through countless Christians, an attempt to soothe our uneasy conscience at times, to ease our doubt of our personal worthiness, to make up for too many missteps that we have in our life. We turn our back on grace and embrace a life of legalism. If only I did this, this, and this, then I would please God. The audience of Hebrews was guilty of this in the first century. They probably thought if they could just return to that secure routine of the special, specific religious rituals, they could ha somehow find rest for their souls and relief for their consciences. But remember, they'd already become dull of hearing, as chapter 5, verse 11 tells us, and they were stalling out in their spiritual growth, as it goes on in verse 12, especially during such times of spiritual doldrums. The current legalism can begin to cause us to drift back into our old patterns of wrong-headed religiosity, where we think if we just do this, it will please God. God loved us while we were still sinners. Yes, he wants us to live a life according to his precepts for our good. He knows what's best for us. But living or doing things is not bringing us closer to God. The only thing that brings us closer to God is accepting the great high priest, Jesus Christ, that he has made the way for us. But when the writer of Hebrew puts an end to this thinking through four crucial words, and these are probably the most crucial in this passage, in verse 11 it says, but when Christ came. With this simple contrast, the writer turns the spotlight from the external into the internal, from the rituals to right living, from imperfect priest to that great high, perfect high priest. He stresses that, the stresses that the body, soul creatures that we are can't use external physical cure for an essentially what's an internal spiritual problem, and that's a problem of a sinful heart. That problem cannot, can only be solved through Jesus Christ and nothing else. When Jesus died for our sins, he rose victoriously over death. He ascended into heaven, and he replaced that temporal, temporary symbol of a sacrificial system which was in the Old Covenant with the permanent reality to which it has always been pointing to. From beginning to creations, earlier on in Hebrew says, points to Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says, the greater 
and more perfect tabernacle, not fashioned by mallets or woven by human hands, but be create, created in the heavens by God. His offering for sin was not another endless continual sacrifice of animal, animals whose blood can never cleanse us spiritually or eternally. He offered his blood, in verse 12, once for all. Thus he accomplished us for eternal redemption. Yes, the old sacrificial covenant system had its time and its place. It was here for a specific purpose that was God-ordained. It was established for the nation of Israel until the coming of the Messiah, and it kept them centered on the reality of their sin and their need of salvation. That was the purpose of the law, to show them how far short they would fall from God's perfect precepts. But God provided another way. However, the cleansing accomplished by those animal sacrifices was only useful for a ceremonial cleansing, verse 13, so that they are outwardly cleansed. Christ is superior as our high priest. He offered himself to the Father through the Holy Spirit, and his priceless blood had the infinite power to cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God, as verse 14 says. So what's our application today? It's on the other side of your bulletin insert. The application we want to get from this scripture today is a reformation of our consciences. The visible, physical, tangible are common, but artificial slaves for the guilty conscience. It's easy to become addicted to them because we feel like we're doing something to earn our salvation. Many people suffering from the pain of guilt and the weight of sin has turned to religious rituals so they can quickly cross, but those rituals can quickly cross into outright superstitions. Well, if we do this, God will be pleased with me. Or if I do that, I'll be acceptable before God. They believe that if they surround themselves by religious images, Christian music, artwork, holy people, places, and things, that these will magically counteract that deep-seated pain that they feel of a restless conscience. That's nothing new. We go back to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. God provided a miraculous healing through the bronze serpent. They were, had sinned, and he caused serpents to go into the camp and bite them. And those that were sick, Moses created this bronze serpent with God's instruction. He says, look and live. If you just look to the bronze serpent, you will be spared death. It was a symbol of Christ being lifted up. But 800 years later, we see the people of Israel dragging around this piece of bronze nothing and burning incense to it. It's described in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. They were using what was once a significant symbol as a magical talisman, saying, well, we have this object from our past that saved us then. Maybe it will save us now. They were looking at it the wrong way. In a similar way, we can attach mystical or magical significance to our religious symbols, whether it's stained glass windows, a gilded cross, a leather Bible that we hold precious, a particular approach to Christian living, or even respected teachers. And there's nothing wrong with these symbols in and of themselves, or the artwork, or even wise Christian mentors. But sometimes the fixation on activities and externals can distract us from the only one 
who can cleanse our conscience. So let me suggest two guidelines for turning our attention toward the authentic reformation of our conscience, and these are listed in your bulletin. The first is we need to stop overemphasizing the externals. I don't mean that we need to ignore anything externally. After all, we are physical beings created to live in a physical world. But if we over-sensual that touch it, taste it, see it, experience that the world brings to us, it swung the pendulum way too far and it's stuck there. What we need is that internal, external balance between the two that we might live holy, righteous lives. We need to push back on those externals that we think we are placing our trust in instead of who we should be placing our trust in. We need to push it back. We need to de-emphasize those religious, ritualistic religion and stop going through motions to avoid over-cluttering our lives with superficial religious junk. We need to simply clear the clutter of these Christian crutches that will allow us to move on to that essential second step. And that second step is we need to refocus on the internals. We need to look beyond the shadow of those symbols to the substance of which they point to. Whether it's hymns or choruses, daily devotions or weekly sermons, any one of these spiritual disciplines can become an end in itself. Saying, well, if I just get one more sermon or one more Bible reading in, I'll please the Lord. Let these things move us from where we are into the reality of what we're worshiping. To focus on what God focuses on, as I read in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. We need to look to Christ to fix our eyes on him, as we'll study in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, when we get to there, that when we do, even our frenzied activities for him will fade into the light of a nourishing fellowship with him. When we approach him, when we really approach him, the cleansing will have already begun. We can cleanse our consciousness. We can cleanse our mind of that filth that's there through God's word. Realizing it's not the externals that we do, but our internal heart attitude toward, toward God through Christ. You'll experience a body-soul experience, and you'll experience a reformation of the conscience. You'll look at the graphic there at the bottom of this page. Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14. We're talking today about a better tabernacle. In the Old Covenant, it was the place, the physical tabernacle. In the New Covenant, it's the better tabernacle, a tabernacle built by God. In the Old Testament, Old Covenant, it was the preparation, what the priest did every day, and then one, the one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But in the New Covenant, it's the better preparation. Christ died for our sins once for all, that we might have an eternal life with him, that we might be able to bring our incense, our prayers and petitions and praises to God in his holy temple. Into the holy of holies, we can go boldly before him and bring our request to him. And that's what Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, it's a better tabernacle, a tabernacle not made by human hands, but a tabernacle that was made by God from the beginning of time. The next week we'll continue our adventure through the book of Hebrews as we focus on our eternal inheritance in a message titled, Sign 
sealed, delivered in blood. So please read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28 in preparation for next week. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your many blessings of every day. We thank you for your love and your goodness to us while we were yet sinners. We thank you that you've built a better tabernacle, that we don't have to rely on the daily rituals of the priest or the day of atonement that covered our external but never covered our inner conscience, Father. We pray as each day we'll take advantage of the opportunity to come before your throne with our prayers and our petitions and our praises that will bring them into your very presence in this better tabernacle, knowing that Christ was the perfect and ultimate sacrifice. He died once for all, that we might live forever, Father. Praise your name for this, your blessings to us each day. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.